0: Hello everybody and welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do? Uh, a new year and new us. We've been through one month. We've now got a fanzine out, thanks to all our loyal patrons and certainly the new ones who've just joined us this time. You really make it possible to keep us on the airwaves and get a little bits of gaming goodness out towards you. Um, it's not just me, of course. There's always Baz. Are you there, Baz? Hello, mate. I'm here. How are you doing? Yeah, not bad. Not bad, actually. Looking forward to some, uh, some chat with our special guests because once again, dear listeners, we've gone above and beyond and got you... Uh, a gaming legend to speak to us. Uh, Mr. Greg Stolze. how are you doing, Greg? I'm doing well, thank you very much.
1: Excellent stuff. Yeah, you see, you so, call me a legend and my voice drops like two registers. That, that's, that's it, <laughs> it's the time of heroes, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you've been involved in quite a lot of projects over the years, it turns out. Yes. Uh, I think we've been involved in many of those. I think I'll probably start way back in uh, Alamara, uh, for the sort of years of Over the Edge, uh, for which he wrote Myth of Self, um, Forgotten Lives, things like that. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm curious about that time because um, it was certainly a game that captured the imagination of me and Baz when we were at uh, university, I think. It was 1990, mm-hmm. something like that. Way
1: back and... into the four times.
0: Something <laughs> <laughs> black and white, I'll see if that may be. But that sort of game had tons of really wacky, crazy ideas without going Gonzo. What was it like to write for something... Of that nature where it seems to me anyway as a reader that there couldn't possibly be anything that was off limits you, you pretty much had a, an open book right to write whatever you wanted
1: yeah um that it, it spoiled me for uh you know some of the projects i was involved with later um although um if you look at something like over the edge where your remit is oh write some crazy thing and then you compare it with world of darkness where you are working for a developer who says all right what we want from you is this particular subgroup who we're thinking is like this and here's who their enemies are and here's what their funky powers are and here's where they fit into the society but within those constraints just you know do whatever you want and we'll <laughs> change it if i don't like it and there's actually real advantages to both approaches alamara was a great project because when i for me because when i got uh, involved with it I was still in college and had always wanted to be a writer. And then suddenly I found that there was this, this outlet where I'm like, wait, I can write for this and get paid? I'm <laughs> in. And uh, so I was very, you know, at, at, uh, at my creative, What? how do I want to put this? I don't want to say at my creative peak, but I was in a position where just being let off the leash was something I could run with for a long time. And then later on, when I started uh, you know, working on projects where I had to play a little better with others, that was actually kind of a relief because it's like, okay, no, I don't have to do everything myself and come up with something that nobody else could possibly have thought of. I'm helping and I'm getting helped. And it's it's cooperative and collaborative. So they both have their advantages. But yeah, definitely getting started, uh, you know, having over the edge be my first uh published credit sort of definitely put me on a, a certain trajectory. Uh I and and you know, I've been the uh I don't know. If you say if you think of like the OSR and the hardcore Dungeons and Dragons people as sort of the right wing of gaming, just the most <laughs> conservative wing, and then <laughs> off on the left. You've got the most uh you know liberal oh, you know this is gonna be one very rules like game that just does one situation really well, like uh, I'm thinking of penny for a thought for my thoughts it's always right. sort of my my touchstone for super niche left wing games and and I guess I'm sort of the the moderate middle of the road figure. Because I, you know, I I slew back and forth, but, you know, and I don't want to don't want to alienate anybody.
0: <laughs> Very good. Uh, petty for my thoughts. It's an interesting one to mention because um, I've not actually played it myself. I'm aware of it. Um, And certainly there's a little convention they go to in Amsterdam, in Holland, uh, and they hire out um a pub, which normally just has people playing backgammon and chess. Uh, and then a, a group of people from England and various other parts of Europe invade for a weekend and spend more money in one weekend than they get in a month normally. But they've got like a little tiny room downstairs, and people go to it to play Penny and just come back traumatized. It's one of those games that seems quite, <laughs> it's this little A5 book, but like, you see grown men and women like, with tears streaming down their faces, and you wonder what's been going on down there. And it's ah, a yes. role playing game, apparently.
1: Um, the deal with Penny with my, for my thoughts is it's extremely rules light and it's extremely specific. It's uh, Ben Lehman's game where you are all amnesiacs who have repressed some horrible trauma. And so you're being treated with an experimental telepathy drug so that you can pick up the memories from others that they are suppressing. So you start telling your story and there's mechanics in play for others to say, no, that's not how that happened. You're misremembering. I think what really happened is this, and then someone else will say, I think what really happened is that, and you get to pick between this and that, but you don't get your original narrative back. So, right. depending on how you know how emotionally invested you get in this, it can be it can. Get very very dark very fast. Uh, I remember playing it at Gen Con, and it turned out. And the memory I recovered was, oh yeah, our boat sank on our honeymoon, and uh, after, and we were we were <coughs> in the life raft for sixty two days, and uh, you know she died, and eventually I I had to law of the sea kicked in and. And that's the memory I was repressing. And it's got, uh, you know, mechanics in place for, oh, you know, here here's how uh, to do this if you want to run and uh, a sort of uh, serial numbers filed off Delta Green version. But, right. you know, the stock standard version, is, there's no superpowers, there's no magic, there's no mythos, there's no monsters. It's just people and trauma. So. Yeah.
2: Well, that sounds a lot like one of the scenarios you could play in Over the Edge, funnily enough. It does, actually. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's it's... Sylvan Pines... Uh, a yeah. great supplement. It just reminded me of that massively. Uh, and there was a whole bunch of stuff you could do with that. I know a lot of people played over the edge for comedy kicks. I don't think it was ever written as a comedy game. I'd be interested in your opinion on that one, Greg. But it was no, certainly a th- game you could play straight and I thought was better for it.
1: Yeah. Uh, I don't think it had a lot of tonal reinforcement. And, you know, some of the stuff, it, it always just wanted to be weird. And mm. it could certainly be weird and really funny. But it could also veer to you know weird and really disturbing. So mm. it's uh, it's definitely one of those games where again, you the the group will determine the the tone and the pitch of it uh, because there isn't so much it because it's not really that concerned with it uh, you know, with the built in and it can it can change all over the place too, um, in the original games of it, I remember. Uh, you know, there would be some sessions that were just goofy, just craziness all over the place. And then there were others where it's like, no, here's the, you know, you're, you're going to come into contact with a child trafficking ring. And what are you guys going to do about that? So that's what gaming's for, right? To uh, be unpredictable.
2: It's a big game of what if, isn't it? There's, there's like a what if around every corner.
1: Just recently, um, one of the projects I'm working on, I was, you know, writing the GM advice chapter which you know I've written a number of GM advice chapters and the sentence that just sort of popped out without a lot of consideration was wildness is the killer app of gaming (laughs) and I'm like wait wait this is exactly what I've been working at for the last 20 years is a way to have all the advantages of the wildness of players being players and having that be a positive and not something that blows up your game. So, and I mean, I think this is, uh, I I was thinking of this in, uh, in connection with Apocalypse World, which at first I read and I didn't get it in that I'm like, what's, what's so different about this? What's so, so crazy and wild. And someone said to me, Greg, this tells you how to GM the rules make GMing possible for people who don't know a lot about story construction and plot and theme and all that English major stuff that you've been studying for so long. And I'm like, Oh, okay. So people like that, huh? And so that's what, uh, some of the new stuff I'm working on has, has got that influence in there of, okay, how can I make this easier for a GM who doesn't have an English degree and, you know, doesn't want one.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that's, um, it was a hallmark of all the sort of um, indie small press publishing games that came out. There's a, a little uh, cottage industry going in the UK of people making these games in the, in the bedrooms and stuff. There's a whole slew of them, Collective Endeavor is a group that, that produced loads. And I was sort of challenged at the time because I knew quite a lot personally, uh, and on um, what sort of my game. And, and lots of the challenges I had initially were sort of like, well, why are you telling people to do that? And obviously you do this. Uh, and, and ultimately one just said to me, well, yeah, you know that, Gary, because you've been GMing for several years and you've been writing adventures and you've been doing all this stuff. So to you, it's second nature. But to someone else who's just picking up gaming for the first time, they don't know all this stuff. And there's loads of things that are perhaps unwritten, for example, in a and d manual or something like that, that perhaps the indie games are more fine-tuned to that you don't have the rules per se written like this is your initiative but it's sort of bedded into baked into the text of the book so you play a particular style of game and it tells you exactly how to play that style of game it's not saying uh, like apocalypse world this is a generic game that you would go and play anything with but to play post-apocalyptic games about the relationships and threats that people were under, then you play in this way and this is how you would gm your game i think you're, you're absolutely right on that
1: yeah yeah and, uh, you know, and it's, it's fascinating to watch uh, what people do when they, they get these tools. Yeah, that's, that's something I've been working on. And, you know, how do you get GMs? Where do GMs come from? Uh, and it, it's, it's been sort of a contagion model, right? You play mm-hmm. in a game long enough, and after watching someone GM and having someone GM for you, you intuit how it's supposed to go. And, you know, with the, the trip, the typical creative journey starts with the step of, well, I could do that just as well, if not better. Mm. And so you think that about your GM and decide to put that into action. And now you, and now the contagion has proceeded, but the question is, can you create new patient zeros with a project with a product? Like, you know, can you, this was something I tried to do with my next big Delta green book control group is I, you know, my thought was, is there a way you can write a book that you could hand to someone who had never even played a role playing game and have them learn how to be a GM with it? Cause obviously this happened at some point in the seventies, people who'd never been a dungeon master just decided to do it and could. Mm. You know, at some point there was a, a pay, you know, patient zeros for gaming, but we're relying on them too much, I think. And I'm like, you know, I, I want people to be able to bootstrap this. And so sure. I came up with a uh, control group to, it's a series of scenarios that, that uh, present the rules in a staged fashion. Right.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's like, okay, first game. Don't worry about anything but sand rolls and skills. We're not going to do any complicated combat stuff. We're not going to do character generation. You know, this is going to be a one shot with this small group of characters going through this untenable situation. Here it is. And, you know, and then the second one is, okay, now that you know how skills and sand work, we're going to, here's a combat heavy scenario so you can learn the combat rules. And, you know, and then after that, it's like, okay, now we're going to do character generation. And, you know, and it moves on from there to, uh, you know, to get in the, the relationship rules that are in the new Delta Green. So it's meant to introduce the rules in, a, you know, a, a dig- indigestible chunks instead of just one huge thing. So mm. we'll see. We'll see if this does what I want. Uh, I'm also happy with the scenarios as scenarios. Uh, I don't think they are. I don't think anyone is going to pick these up and say, oh, this is clearly a beginner's scenario and insufficient, sophisticated and hardcore group. No, I mean, I designed them all to be meat grinders too. So,
0: Sure. Yeah.
2: Take it a step back, Greg. I mean, for years now, I've been directing people to your website because you've had a couple of articles on there, uh, how oh, to be a player you. and how to be a GM. And, and mm-hmm. for me... They've been, you know, the best example that I've seen of actually explaining in text, which is a devil's own job of trying (laughs) to explain to people in one go. I mean, I can only imagine, please, like for my sanity, tell me you had to write that 30 times and you're still not happy with it because it must be a a heck of a job.
1: Uh, I might have. Well, I didn't write that particular one 30 times, but. You know, I've written how to GM for Gamma World, and I've written how to GM for Hunter the Reckoning, and I've written how to GM for Rain, and I've written it for A Dirty World. And so once you've gone over it, and, you know, for Unknown Armies, once you've gone over it multiple times, you start to, you know, find yourself, you're like, okay, here are the things I keep saying over and over again. Mm -hmm. Those must be important. (laughs) Trying to condense them to their uh their most efficient expression so yeah i mean that was not just something i sat down and it came out like kubla khan no it was it is the culmination of you know years of thought and experience okay cool but you know probably still if i redid them today i'd change some stuff
2: Mm. Mm. okay so Let's, let's talk about Unknown Armies,
1: if that's okay. Because
2: nice. we, we want to get to the meat. And for, for Gaz and I and many of our listeners, both of them probably, big <laughs> Unknown Armies fans. Um, so thank you for that. Oh, yeah. and, and one of the things I remember about Unknown Armies is it was like written just for GMs of a certain stripe. And it was like, you know, we may be on different continents, but you were talking directly into the brains of some weird people in this country. <laughs> so, you know thank you for that it was like well you know i love letters of bizarre stuff
1: it's it's not just me um i mean Mm. unknown armies always was and has absolutely continued to be a team effort and you know Mm. at the beginning it was me and john and uh you know it was me and john in second edition and now in this edition it was me and a team with john sort of watching from you know watching from the side of the stage mm-hmm. but I absolutely couldn't have done third edition all by myself and if I had it would be very different and not as good so okay. <laughs> I mean I I just want to be very clear on that it's not Greg's unknown armies it's unknown armies that Greg did a lot of the work on mm-hmm. what brought it about um well after 2nd Edition, and some of the stuff I wrote for 2nd Edition, uh, you know, I'd always loved Unknown Armies, and I'd always uh, had it as, you know, uh, it, it had a very special place in my, uh, my publishing history, but I didn't have any new, great, beautiful, brilliant idea. And I'm like, I, I don't want to put something out just for the sake of, just because I know it would sell. Because I think once you start doing that, you start disappointing your readers and buyers. And once you start disappointing your readers and buyers, they stop being readers and buyers. (laughs) Uh, I didn't want to do something for Unknown Armies until I was confident that I could do something that I liked as well as To Go or um, Break Today or, you know, the stuff I did in in first edition. Uh, So it was sort of dormant. And then the Bundle of Holding came up. Are you familiar with this? Sure are, yep. they're, yeah. they're
2: responsible for a great deal of my loss of money and never read PDFs. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I do have a few of those. <laughs> uh, but yeah. So the Bundle of Holding came up, and he's like, we want to do an Unknown Armies Bundle of Holding. And I'm like, yeah, okay. And it was really successful. And I said, wow, wow. There's clearly more demand than I you know, was was entirely aware of. And John Nephew's like, well, maybe we should do a new edition and, you know, bring it out of the 90s and into the present. And so I said, sure, but I'm going to need a lot of help. And so uh, Cam Banks immediately, uh, you know, he's, he's from Atlas. He took on the leadership job. You know, we assembled a team of some new writers who hadn't worked on the property, some old fans who had always loved it and just started parceling it out and working it over and, you know, going through drafts and trying to get everything to cohere. And, uh, you know, I hope we did a good job.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of things fit together a bit more now. Like, there's nothing necessarily wrong with the first or second edition, but um, some of the rules... I don't want to say with generic, but it, it didn't feel as as, ma- as mapped closely together, if you know what I mean. So the madness meter seemed a little bit separate, and and things like that. And certainly, this edition, everything seems a bit more you thought about uh, as a group that the sort of how everything's going to work together, if you know what I mean. And and there's lots of tie-in between different bits of it now that seem to make sense. That uh, was from-
1: that was a lot of what I did, and I mean, yeah. and, and I look at that and I'm like, wow, it's. It's like I came back to it with another decade of design experience. Mm. And I mean, that that's basically what it is, is that I just looked at <coughs> what I'd done before and filtered that through the experiences I'd had playing it and that I'd heard about from other people playing it. And I'm like, okay, what do people really, really like? And how can we foreground that? And what do people just sort of tolerate and put up with, and can we get rid of that? And it was my experience that nobody really cared about the stats. No one was really chuffed about having a huge body stat, but they loved the self-defined skills, and they loved the madness meter. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, let's see if we can wedge that together and make those interrelate in a way that that's interesting and compelling and tight. And so, uh, it's, you know, it's not perfect, but I'm really pleased with, but I think it's, it's definitely a move forward and I'm really pleased with it. I mean, some people have said, Oh, why, why does the, why is this connected to that? And that doesn't quite make sense to me. And, um, in some cases, the answer is it was because all the obvious connections had already been made and I still (laughs) had like three left. So I kind of had to shuck and jive and spackle it together, but it's it's still, I think, a, a tight design.
0: Yeah, it's really good. It definitely shows that it's had some uh, maturity to it now.
1: Well, and thank,
0: really you. thank you. Yeah. So one of the big sort of system things, I guess, is One Roll Engine. So um, yes. certainly for me, it was Godlike that I first encountered that. I don't know if that was the actual Genesis. I can't quite remember now. Um, certainly played Raid and other games as well on top of it. But for Godlike, it had a, like a really interesting it made interesting scenarios if you know what i mean to, to a degree which seems odd. like the, the system itself was very tight and seemed to make logical sense in the way things would work so for both our listeners who don't understand it's kind of you're on a bunch of d10s and then you're looking for matches so you're looking for like a number of tens or a number of eights or something like that and uh, the more of one thing you've got the wider the roll is so that has one set of effects so it might be faster for example and the higher it is the higher quality it is so if you rolled seven ones that'd be really quick but bad quality so if you're running a war ace um you sort of do it really quickly but you'd be knackered at the end but if you got one ten, you wouldn't run it really fast but you'd do it with style and panache and not be out of breath well you do two tens all, all that sort of thing yeah, you need at least one match correct uh, i say correct like you don't know
1: obviously testing you on your own knowledge um, um but yeah the, the, but at least just push your glasses <laughs> up and say actually to put <laughs> it
0: I think you'll find. find. <laughs> if you have one hard dice. Uh, yeah, so it was things like if you wanted to do two actions or, or complete two things, you'd need two pairs or two sets of dice within your pool and things like that. But when you read it straight off the page, those things sounded right, if you know what I mean. It it, seemed, it was unusual at the time. There was a system where for all the little bells and whistles for different things you want to do, every time I read one, I went, well, that just makes sense. You know, straight Without even rolling the dice, it all just seemed to make logical sense straight away.
1: That's that's really nice to hear. Um, what I've been doing, we're preparing to relaunch Rain. Which, mm. uh, if you're, you know, for your listeners who may not be familiar with it, uh, it was my pre Game of Thrones stab at fantasy rulership, and the the premise I took was said I'd played a lot of D anD D games that were basically you're the chosen heroes who are gonna go save the world because no one else can. And that's a great story. It's fun. It's compelling. Uh, It allows you to put a lot of different characters together, so you get these fish out of water interactions. But I feel it's been disproportionately represented in fantasy gaming. And I'm like, well, what if you had a world that didn't need to be saved? What do you do then? Well, you, you know, based on my experience with players, they're going to want to become stinking rich amass power maybe declare themselves king and so i'm like okay let's do a game where it's that where there are mechan where there's a lot of mechanical support for authority where it's like okay you've got it's not just you as some lone murder hobo wandering the land looking for kobolds it's you have a tribe or a church or a country that you lead and you can do things for it and it can get things done for you and so there is a set of company rules in Rain that are how you have your merchant troop or thieves guild or whatever you've defined your company as attempt to accomplish things and mm-hmm. it works in with the personal hero uh, heroics of the characters. So I put out a bunch of support for that over the years. And what we're going to do now through the, uh, the auspices of atomic overmind press is gather all the stuff that's been written for rain, uh, reorganize it. Cause I organized it very weirdly in the first version, edit everything, get, New art, because for a lot of the supplements that I ransomed out, I did the art myself because the budget was very close to the bone. And so now we are hoping to move away from the bone and maybe get good art. Put some mates on it. <laughs> yeah, yes, absolutely. So we're going to have a beautiful looking set of hardbacks. That is the plan.
0: Because the initial rainbow, was it Daniel Solis or someone who did um, that kind of calligraphy style?
1: Art yes, Solis bit? did the cover. And and the, co- the original cover is great and it's iconic. Um, we will probably keep that background, uh, but move in a more realistic art style. So one of the things that I've been seeing, I've been reading through all of this text and you know all the different uh rules i've written over the course of years um and so it's 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 a little bit all over the place uh you know there are times when you know oh here's here's a martial techniques a set of of martial arts that are written up with all this flavor and verve, and then you know there's another one two paragraphs down from a different supplement and it's just you know single lines here's what you do, here's the effect it has. Here's what you do, here's what you need to roll, here's the effect it has. <coughs> so I'm going to have Go. to try to smooth that out. Sure, because I
0: think the, the sort of pedigree of rain is quite interesting as well, isn't it? Because before, I mean, in the current world, we've got Kickstarter and Indiegogo and things like that, but back in the day, if I remember correctly, you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you were kind of doing a ransom model for this. You was, You kind yes. of like give me this much money and I will write this many words for you, my dear, dear readership. Uh, and that works out quite well, I think, or oh, you've certainly produced a lot of work out, out of it.
1: Yeah, no, uh, it was crowdfunding before there was Kickstarter. And the way I did it was I would actually write the stuff first. And <laughs> Crazy. I love work. Well, I mean, this has been my experience with crowdfunding is that it is a trust based economy. And mm-hmm. I'm like, if I want, people to trust me with their money you know if i want them to give me money for something sight unseen i need to have some skin in the game so that they'll know that i'm not just gonna you know take this off and run down to the liquor store (laughs) and you know being able to say this stuff is written and laid out as soon as i get as soon as the check clears i will put it up on the internet for you and for everyone else that Mm. is you know, that gives them a lot, uh, a lot more confidence. I mean, they still, for all they know, it could be very poorly written, but uh, I was relying on my previous body of work to kind of alleviate those concerns. And it seemed to work. Uh, Eventually, Kickstarter came along and made the system so much smoother and simpler for everyone involved. The deal with uh, with Rain was that, yeah, I would write stuff and then say, okay, if you give me money for it, I will give it out for everyone with the intention that the people who got in on it, on the free stuff, would then be more likely, if they liked it, of course, would be more likely to back the next one. Mm. And it worked. A lot of people said there is no possible way this financial scheme can work. It relies too heavily on common decency among your fans and they're like no everyone will just wait for it to be free and no one will ever pay for it and mm. that's not how it worked out at all.
0: Restore some faith in humanity I guess. I think it was um it was James Raji who, who does Lamentations of the Flint Princess stuff he's been to Games Expo in the UK a couple of times which is kind of our biggest game show Uh, and there's a couple of those times where he just went and put all his stock out and said, pay what you want. Uh, And people were coming up to him saying, like, you're just going to lose all of your money. You will never be able to publish anything again. People are just going to take whatever they want for a pound or whatever and walk away. And he said, like, a couple of people actually did that. But on whole, he made more money those shows than he did when he had a fixed price for his books, which is really strange, which just goes to show that if you've got a quality product or people believe in what you're doing, then they will pay what they think it's worth, which,
1: you know, Uh has worked (laughs) out the weird unexpected thing with me with Kickstarter, I've I've said this before is that I always expected with, you know, my first ransom, which was for like, I don't know, 400, 600 bucks. I'm like, I'll probably get like 200 people paying $3 each. Right. Mm. And instead it was like 50 people paying much more than I expected. Mm. Uh, And so, and that, that's, that's held through. It's, It hasn't been the swarm of minnows that I thought, but rather, uh, you know, a succession of whales. Uh, I remember with... uh, I can't remember which short story. I also, for your listeners unfamiliar with my oeuvre, I also ransom out assorted short stories because it's faster and pays better than waiting for magazines to get back to me. (laughs) And is more reliable. But um, I had someone pledged $300 or something for a short story. And I wrote back and I'm like, you meant 30, right? I think your finger slipped. And he's like, no, no, I've, I've enjoyed so much of your work for so long that I see this as an opportunity to kind of pay you for all the other stuff. Yeah. No, the, the unexpected consequence was that when you allow people to pay what they think it's worth, some people think it's worth a lot more than you do.
2: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah and, and they're opening up um they're buying a little bit of a relationship as well a well deserved one you know they they feel like they're getting their fingers their fingerprints over the product in some yeah. way and that's a nice well, thing to
1: have and you know there are backers who you know pointed stuff out and I'm like oh yeah yeah I did miss that thank you mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know one of the guys who ha- we haven't started the rain kickstarter but one guy put sent in a suggestion he's like you should do something where you have a, a setup where it's one roll gives you your scenario. And I'm mm-hmm. like, huh. <laughs> that, <laughs> one that could maybe... I did something like that with A Dirty World. There's... It's, it's my film noir version of the one roll yeah. engine, and in the back has how you can throw your dice and get a complicated crime scenario for detectives to solve. And so I might You know, import that terrain and and see how it turns out. But yeah, it's it definitely goes both ways. It's definitely more than just financial. So Mm -hmm. I've been very delighted that I stumbled upstairs onto Kickstarter.
0: Sure, (laughs) there's kind of a crossover there where you mentioned uh, you mentioned doing short stories and writing, and I think that's one of the things that was interesting about unknown armies and such and of course you wrote Godwalker, which is a novel based in that kind of world as well which you know baz and i both consume greedily um a really interesting piece of fiction I, th- I think there's um there's definitely an element there of uh, role-playing games are about making your own stories but having interesting stories available like that give other people ideas about what they might do do you think that's fair
1: oh yeah well i mean all, uh, there's all kinds of avenues for creating stories. I mean, you can be playing a video game and thinking up a story in your mind that, that implies an elaborate, rich inner life to, uh, you know, your guy who's running around on the screen shooting aliens. Uh, mm. I've been playing XCOM, uh, enemy within a lot. Someone recommended it to me and it's highly addictive. And just the fact that you can change the names of your soldiers, and uh, you know, change the, their look, when I realized that, oh, hey, this guy had, you know, when you give him this one particular upgrade, suddenly he's he's in a sleeveless shirt,
2: <laughs> and you know,
1: I'd I'd had yep. him with a baseball cap turned backwards, and I'm like, well, now I have to give him the nickname, Dude Bro and naturally after that anytime he got killed on a mission i'd scrub it and restart back to save going no (laughs) not dude bro he's too beautiful for this world (laughs) and so gaming yeah you know you get into a role-playing game and you start to develop the uh the faculties of imagination of putting uh, of imagining a character in a fantastic situation and thinking, what would the response be? What would the most interesting response be? What would the most realistic response be? What would the most surprising response be? So I can see it easily as a gateway drug for novels. Mm. Yeah, for um, sure. Did you guys, were you guys aware that there is a, uh, a third edition inspired novel that I wrote? What,
2: third edition D&D?
1: No, (laughs) thirty. I have to forgive. Everything's about him. I also wrote a fantasy novel for thirteenth age. I've read that, the Forgotten Monk. Yes, that was great. Thank you for that.
2: Do you know what my very favorite thing about that is? And I'm sure people tell you their favorite things in novels all the time. I hopefully you've not heard this one. My favorite thing about that is all of your campfires had broken potions of healing scattered around the ground, bits of ground glass. (laughs) <laughs> and I thought that was such a lovely touch because that made it a novel that had come from gaming rather yeah, than just a me. fancy novel that had come from reading Tolkien 20 years ago. It I just felt like, me. yeah, absolutely. It was just, it was a really nice idea that the, the adventurers would just leave litter behind them.
1: 90% sure that's not in my book, but uh, <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's, <should've> there's <laughs> a new unknown Armies novel called You. Mm -hmm. Did you guys hear about that? I haven't heard about that yet, no. Tell us. Oh. um, As I was working on Unknown Armies third edition, I came up with an idea for a story uh, through my writer's group primarily. Um, One of the women in this writer's group I belong to brought in a story in the second person, right? So it's presented as if it's happening to you. It's like you get up in the morning you find yourself, uh, you know, like a choose-your-own-adventure book, only with no choices. Mm. And she was very, she was experimenting with sort of the uh, the effect of this point of view. And I thought, that's really weird and different and unknown armies-ish. And so I wrote a novel from the point of view of a uh, sort of grumpy, middle-aged man... Unhappily divorced, middle class, lives in America, and is a cultist. Uh, you know, laughing
0: and all, all that, <laughs> a, and a, uh, a uh,
1: an avatar cultist of the Necessary Servant, which is one of the Unknown Army's sort of governing archetypes. And he uh, falls into an escalating series of uh, you know of episodes based around. His mystical underground involvement, and it's all told from with you in the body of this poor, suffering divorcee, okay. uh, you know, <laughs> aging divorced racket sports enthusiast. Uh, you know, just ill equipped for the brawls in which he finds himself, and constantly <laughs> getting beaten up and losing his temper, and. It's it's a very, very fun book. I had a great time with it. Um, and, you know, opens with the line, this book hates you.
0: <laughs> it
1: just goes from there. So if you haven't read that, I recommend that you you know, give it a go. You can find it on Amazon.
0: I'm sure we will. It, that sounds a little bit reminiscent, actually, of the UA book in terms of, um, the. I can't remember exactly how it goes, but there's a chapter on uh, fights or combat, as there always is in these sort of books. Uh, but it starts with kind of like, you know, explaining that you're, sort of hold your guts and you've got a knife and you're a dirty cellar and no one knows you're there and you know if you die then no one would care and that it really brings home the sort of this isn't a game about having killing goblins or anything like that it just sort of brings on like you're not equipped for this kind of situation but you're in it and what do you do now
1: it's, it's humanist horror more than action adventure that was a Tynes bit that is you know everyone talks about that as their favorite bit from second edition and i'm like yep that was Tynes. That was. <laughs> but eh, you know it's a very good bit. <laughs> Definitely.
0: So one of the other games I wanted to mention actually from, from the SDA was uh Feng Shui, if I pronounced it correctly. I'm I'm aware I might be using the Mandarin rather than Cantonese pronunciation. <laughs> but um
1: Oh that Feng Shui, was... yeah, I was the developer <laughs> for that for a while. That that was uh I was the developer for that for a while, and uh that was when I found out that I'm a better writer than developer. Um, All right. and, well, I mean To be a good developer, when I think of the best developers I've worked for, they have this this thing where you're afraid to disappoint them, and yet at the same time you desperately want them to like you and like your work, (laughs) but you're scared to send your work in, but you're scared to not send your work in, and I just can't inspire those feelings in people. I think perhaps... (laughs) A little too, uh, I don't know what it is. Maybe I'm not confident enough, but I, yeah, I was a developer and, you know, I did some good stuff, but I felt that the effort of wrangling freelance writers and, uh, and organizing artists and dealing with it when people flaked on me and, you know, the, the, the administration was not, Natural to my skills and talents.
0: No, that that sounds like real work rather than doing fun game work,
1: to be honest. It is. That was it. I'm like, yeah, this doesn't, this feels like a job. This doesn't feel (laughs) like I'm getting away with anything.
0: Is that where the inspiration for Caesar the New Flash came from? Your kind of dystopian authoritarian future was born out of that experience.
1: <laughs> no, I always uh, that had always been. I'm like, hey, let's let's just take everything that's that I worry about in America and crank it to eleven and send it to its natural conclusion. <laughs> and that will never happen in real life, right? <laughs> <laughs> Everything's great. Everything's great. <laughs>
2: So, um, from a historical basis, um, other things that that shouldn't work but do—superheroes in World War II. How did that come about?
1: Uh, that was all Dennis. Uh, wow. Dennis came to me with, "He's like, I want to do a superheroes, a gritty superhero game in World War II." And Tyne said, "You're good with mechanics." Mm. And the mechanics that I first pitched him uh, were what would eventually turn into Meatbot Massacre which no. was the first thing that I ransomed out but they did mm. not work at all well for godlike because uh it was a real drag to try and control more than one character with us mm. so it it you know from the gm's perspective it was a bookkeeping nightmare and so uh you know we we decided those were not a good fit. And at the same time that I was doing this, I was doing a bunch of world of darkness work. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was before they rebooted everything. So I'm, you know, sort of poking around with the storyteller mechanics and I'm like, well, what's the difference between increasing the number of successes that you need (laughs) and shifting the target number? Cause there's, two different ways to make it harder, but I don't know what each one means. And I'm like, boy, wouldn't it be cool if one way of making things different, uh, making things more difficult meant one thing and another meant another. And then, uh, so I had that thought sort of floating around. And then I'm like, well, what if it wasn't a target number at all? What if, you let the dice pool tell you what the target number is and, mm-hmm. you know, just did it in sets like trying to get pairs and and uh, four of a kind in poker. Would that work with a dice pool? And so I started messing around with that and the experiment wound up working much better than I had initially thought it would. And I was I'm like, wow, this is really slick. You can... You can read this. You can read a lot of data out of this. You can make this do a bunch of stuff with just one role when normally Hmm. you'd have to have a succession of roles. I'm like, I bet this will reduce handling time. (laughs) It's not necessarily something that a lot of players (laughs) think about, but I think that it's uh, something that a lot of players notice. Not necessarily in the terms of calling it handling time, but in terms of complaining about, oh, yeah, this combat system is 30 minutes of fun packed into four hours.
0: <laughs> so where did the things like hard dice and wiggle dice, where you can kind of set it, uh, one of the dice in advance so you can save one for later and set it to whatever you want, Did that was that something you had to use as a bit of a balance later on and think, I need more, or... Or was that all part of the process? That
1: came in quite early in the the development process because I'm like, okay, if we're going to have superheroes, they're going to break the rules. So how would I want to break the rules if I was playing this game and cheating? Well, I'd want to be able to control what turned up. And so I'm like, oh, and if you decide what's going to turn up before you roll, that's good. But if you can decide what one die is going to be after you see what everything else is, that's really good mm. and so there we had hard dice and wiggle dice or as they are in rain expert dice and master dice nice
2: and and it became uh, it became quite a versatile system it's powered an awful lot of very different games and yes. and i'm not sure what you would call stuff like wild talents and progenitor and, and the rest successor games
1: um uh, yeah descendants mm-hmm. um, what we've got going on with the one roll engine, uh, we've got the big or reboot coming. And Mm -hmm. so we're, we're figuring out, you know, we're soliciting other writers to, uh, you know, what, what is your dream thing that you always wanted to do? You know, have you, have you got a dream thing you always wanted to do with the one roll engine? And so we've got one writer who's like, Oh, feudal Japan. Mm -hmm. We've got another one who's like, well, you know, I've got this idea for like magical democracy. So where people are, you know, coming up with all these these ideas of, oh yeah, you know, I've got I kind of want to blend the tropes of the traditional Western with the trappings of uh, you know the Norse Eddas. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, mmm, okay. So people people have many ideas. I myself uh, am working on something where it's like, well, what if you use this to sort of model the Guys in Delta Green who are back at headquarters sending out all those agents to perish and go crazy. <laughs> this is also has a little bit of XCOM inspiration going there. So, yeah, uh, what it's been used for, well, let's see. Benjamin Baugh took it in some fabulous, strange new directions with... Um, Secrets of the Candle... Monsters and Other Childish Things, yeah, Secrets awesome. of Candlewick Manor, And then Alan Goodall, the guy who wants to do the the Japanese uh, one, did a Civil War setting, you know, complete with gangrenous limb rules with, uh, you know, Wild Talents (laughs) was the big sort of, here's our answer to champions with super finicky power simulation rules. So you can completely model down to the last tick you're extremely you know if you want to have a character whose ability is that he can make things turn transparent and control their rate of refractive index you can do that (laughs) and you know if you're like that superpower would suck consider what would happen if this guy turned your whole house into one big magnifying glass
0: I think that was um something that came out of um godlike actually it was it was trying to think of cool ways you could use powers that weren't as immediately obvious. So that there's a, a free adventure called The Glazier. That was one the, of
1: my earlier works, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. And that I thought that was that was genius. So really interesting. And and I think that's a good thing about having that cafeteria style approach to making your powers was as a GM as well, you could come up with like really weird and wonderful ways in which people might have a power which may seem innocuous and then try and work out how mixed with this other power that someone else has, it would then become really powerful, a threat that someone had to
1: stop. Uh, yeah. Um, well, some of, it was something that we've got cooking on, uh, you know, in a different burner. It's not, it's not right at the front now. Uh, one of the, one of the settings we did as a, a an alternate wild settings talent was called grim war it was me sort of flipping the script on the X-Men in a bit of a way where, you know, in the X-Men mutants are hated and despised and feared. And I'm like, what if, okay, so let's let's spin that around and no, mutants are loved and adored and they're like rock stars and they have fans. And, you know, it's, it's the wizards and magicians who are hated and feared. <laughs> uh, and so Grim War... The original version was, I feel, kind of imperfect, and mm-hmm. you know, it had a lot of great, strong stuff in it, but never really caught. Uh, you know, it never, it never really broke wide, and so we're doing a new version of it. I uh, round, I, I did the unknown armies uh, tactic of rounding up a bunch of uh, bright young uh, uh, writers who were looking, you know, for a uh, looking for an opportunity. And, uh, you know, vampirizing their youthful energy. (laughs) So what we're doing with that is we're going to have Grim War be a self-contained game. Uh, We're not going to do the cafeteria-style powers. Uh, It's it's just going to be... But there is a a setup where if you get power A and power 1, you'll get a cross effect that you wouldn't get if you got power A and power B. So you've also got... Bonkers sorcery going on Uh, The bonkers sorcery In the original Grim War was I think a little Too complicated I think The rules were more finicky Than fun where I want Them to so I've I've been simplifying Them enough to be where it's like okay They're finicky enough To be fun but not so finicky That it Stops being fun and starts feeling like You're doing your taxes Mm. Sure. So we're Mm. trying to break that down and, you know, give it a a system more tailored for it and relaunch it, which is, I think, a lot of what the stretch goals in the RAIN Kickstarter are going to be is, you know, getting writers and saying, okay, there is, at this juncture, a huge pool of optional rules in RAIN. You know, we've got a supplement that had weird psychic powers in the modern day. We had a supplement with, uh, this is what it's like being on, and uh, you know, a sailing ship in a really bad storm. And you know, we've got rules for squad level tactical combat with maps. And if you tried to put every single thing that's been written for Rain into one game, it would be a nightmare of rules consultation. Mm. But you know, it, it's the same way that if you order every, order and eat everything on the menu, you're going to get a stomachache. But if you just order the things that you really like, you will get a lovely meal. So I'm hoping mm-hmm. that we will get the uh, get people saying, "Okay, so for this for this supplement for this setting, you're going to want the tactical uh, tactical guy rules, but only the simple version of them." And we're doing a simplified version of combat, but. I've worked out something, uh, you know, more, more sophisticated for, uh, affairs of the heart. Cause we're doing, uh, Oh, actually this was something that, uh, Shane Ivy was talking about wanting to do sometime was a like Napoleonic era game where half of it is your, uh, you know, fighting in Afghanistan and it's charge of the light brigade stuff. But then, and, equal and just as important part is when you're back in britain trying to make a good match and you know having having all this jane austen stuff going on at the country estates and maybe i'll see if he wants to do that through rain <laughs> yeah although oh, since and savagery shane <laughs> is really really busy though so he probably won't be able to but who knows <laughs>
2: Do you ever get the old gang back together? I mean, you, you you've got still working with Ken Height.
1: Oh yeah, well, um, Ken Height is uh, you know working for Pellgrain, mm. and so he's he's busy as the proverbial one-legged man in the ass-kicking contest. So <laughs> if I want, I, I you know I love I, I love his work, and I love working with him. Uh, but yeah, we don't get a chance to all that often, (laughs) uh, but you know, and, and I'm trying to, you know, there's the whole thing about, uh, you know, you want to build out the table and I, I know for a fact that I've gotten a lot of really good breaks in the role-playing industry. And so I've tried to give good breaks to other people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it would be really easy to go back to all the uh, all the really talented, established writers that I know. And I do that. But I'm also trying to, uh, you know, make it a little easier for people who don't have a decade of publishing experience to break into the industry, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm remembering a writer that I took a flyer on when I was developing Feng Shui. And, you know, that guy's name was Mike Merles. <laughs> apparently whatever no, happened to him <laughs> apparently I was the first person to hire him wow <laughs> <laughs> so that's that. that's one of my little brag points that I get to hit on uh, in the same way you know but it was you know, Jonathan Tweet took a chance on me when I was young and kind of annoying he looked past that and he's like oh huh? this guy can write hmm. so and it,
2: it, it sounds like to me you, you've never lost that in all the time that you've been doing this. It's always been about the writing. Is that fair to say? You're a writer first and foremost, and, and that's what, what generates everything else.
1: Yeah. I'm, well, I mean, it's what I always wanted to do mm. since I was a little kid. And the world is much better off with, you know, Greg, the freelance writer than it would be with Greg, the incompetent heart surgeon, or uh, <laughs> I, I would just, there's a lot of jobs I would be, you know, I'd be a disaster at. I'm not very organized and, uh, I drop things a lot. So, <laughs> <laughs> so this, this I can do. And Seems to make people happy and I'm uh, not curing cancer, but I'm also not doing any damage to anyone that I can tell. So <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> so
0: you've also got um a game that kick started last year, I think it was Termination Shock.
1: Termination yes. Shock. It's super fun. Um <laughs> this I, I've been playing it. Have you guys been I don't suppose you've listened to my podcast. I just started listening to it today, actually. Okay. The deal with Termination Shock for your listeners at home is... Well, okay. So I had an idea for a uh, a set of science fiction rules. Um, a new dice mechanic, basically. And I also had all these science fiction-y ideas that were piling up. And so I put the two together and got together a rough outline. But one of the benefits of my lengthy gaming experience is that I knew from observation that science fiction games can be a very hard sell fantasy games. Everyone seems to, you know, have an accepted concept of what's going on and what you're doing, but science fiction games, for some reason, unless there has been a really big popular media property associated with it, it's tough to get people on board. So, you know, Star Wars, Star Trek, those games did great. The, you know, the problem there was not that you didn't have fans. The problem there was that you had to run everything past, uh, you know, Lucasfilm or uh, Universal past a a group that was, you know, set up to okay lunchboxes. As yeah. you know, one guy I knew who worked on a, it wasn't one of those big two, but it was another licensed science fiction property. And he's like, yeah, you know, the turnaround is grueling and it's an entirely, uh, you know, it, it's another layer of editorial control that has entire an entirely different agenda from, out, from the game playing agenda. Mm. You know, our goal is to, make the game as fun as possible and their goal is to keep the the property coherent and as profitable as possible. So, I'm like, all right. So, so science fiction games are a hard sell cuz it's very hard to get into the background and because it uh, you know, no one likes the giant info dump. Uh, no. the Aeon Trinity games tried to get around this. By having by making the info dump more attractive, right? Sure. You had the big, full color, lavishly illustrated section at the beginning of the book that was all in voice, and you know they they really worked hard. And you know when when I was writing for that, they stressed. They're like, you know, this part has to be good. This has to be compelling and draw people in and consistent. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, and and Aon Trinity still struggled in the marketplace a little bit. So I'm like, okay. what if before I try to sell the game, I put up a podcast of the playtests so that the setting and the mechanics, you know, if you want to get familiar with this, you can do this in this fairly benign, pleasant way. Listen, listen to the podcasts. You will hear what the game is like and what it's about and get the background. I had thought... That I was writing this kind of serious, grim, cerebral uh, musing on mankind's place and nature in a broad cosmos. And I brought it to the two players, uh, Lachlan Sudarshan and Jose Garcia. And, you know, as, as we're setting this up, they're like, oh, you know what this needs? A Frasier vibe. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> with. You mean the, 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 the TV show, the sitcom Frasier? And they're like, yeah, oh, that'd be great. And so we wound up with the story of the Burroughs brothers who are basically half Niles Crane, half Han Solo. And <laughs> and it worked. It's been super fun. And, you know, it just has, has had these great plots and character development and everything you could wish for. And, you know, did raise these questions of, okay, how do people react when they are basically cosmic refugees? Uh, You know, when when humanity has been thrust into this strange new milieu with no preparation. And so that's been really exciting. I've just, I'm going to have the end of the first, sort of the first arc up on SoundCloud pretty soon. And uh, after that, Jose said, "Hey, why don't I run it for a while, and you can actually play this game you wrote?" And so, I've been doing that for a while, and and it's been a fascinating perspective to to engage the rules as a player rather than as a GM and game designer. Because sure. I'm I'm immediately like, man, everything's too hard. The failure <laughs> curve has clearly been set too high. Why can't Dude, Why can't girl. I make my guy get shit? done more.
0: <laughs> <laughs> hey bro, this trash. I'm going to have words with him. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so it's, it's been really fun. And um, so once, once rain's done and once grim war's done, uh, that will be my next big gaming project is getting termination shock into uh, a shape to publish. And I've been very fortunate that uh, joining Jose and Lachlan and myself, is Violet Kirk, uh, who has, uh, who's an artist. Uh, she did some of the illustrations for, uh, my game dinosaurs in space. And, uh, when I was looking for more players for termination shock, she agreed to, she graciously agreed to, uh, to jump in. And so she will be, you know, when I finally get in gear to self publish termination shock, she'll be doing all the illustrations for it. That's Gosh. another thing that's that's coming along. One of the things... Okay, we were talking earlier about, you know, games that teach you how to play them, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: One of the things that I did for Termination Shock is there is a, uh, a fairly lengthy chapter on, okay, here is how you build a session so that it's not completely railroading your, uh, your players, but at the same time is not so blasted wide open that you get lost and don't know what to do next. So uh, in the same way that uh, Unknown Armies attempted to have, you know, the good parts of both the sandbox approach and the railroad approach, I'm trying that with uh, Termination Shock 2. It's like, okay, here's how you build a session. And you will want to have these hinge points where it asks questions and uh, it's basically hmm, how to describe this each session you will have a sort of a main question and this could be a question of survival a question of advancing your interests somehow or a question of solving a mystery or learning something important right Mm -hmm. and so that's sort of the, the a plot and then At some point in there, as you're pursuing the A plot, characters get a choice between a B or a C plot. Actually, it should be a B, C, or D plot, uh, which could double, you know, it could be that their choices cause them to double down on peril if they're already in a, a dangerous situation. But it's, you know, going to be, you know, a choice between gaining advantage, learning something important, or, you know, survival. So what the, and, and you see, if you listen to the, the podcast long enough, you'll see sort of this framework playing out in the games because I wrote them all out as, you know, here is a one session playbook. And, you know, it starts out with you guys having the option to, to enrich yourselves or not doing this. But while you're in the process of pursuing that, you are you going to find out who are you going to try and find out who the human spy is on the or who the the spy for earth is who's hidden among the refugees or are you going to get involved in this other plot where these thugs might beat you up or are you going to spend more time with the aliens and try and figure out what their deal is and you go you, you pick one and so then right. by the end you've either succeeded or failed at the primary plot or and also succeeded or failed at the secondary plot. And so there's a lot of options in there. As a player, you've got a whole bunch of agency because you're picking what the secondary plot is because your choices matter a lot in uh, your success or failure with both plots. But as a GM... You have you don't have to be prepared for ninety different bonkers things that your players might try. You've got you know it's like okay I know they're gonna you know I know they're engaged with thing one, and I know the other thing they're gonna get engage is gonna either be A B or C. So it's controllable. It's you know rich and has that wildness that is so unique to tabletop role-playing. You know, it It has still, uh, you know, it's not stifling that that those explosions of unpredictable creativity, but it's not so unstable that a GM has to be Greg Stafford to deal with it.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's that's really interesting. I, th- I think it's one of the problems, actually, of science fiction games has quite often been you can do whatever you want or go whatever you want and in this universe of... Different galaxies, and and for a lot of players, that's a bit kind of I don't know what to do now. And even as a gym, trying to prepare for that, it gets a little bit like, how do I present enough opportunity for my players that they're going to be interested and engaged in it, rather than giving them too much opportunity and they're kind of like a bit listless about what to do next
1: or right. feel yeah, direction
0: yeah. with the game, you know?
1: You don't want that option paralysis and that that sort of uh, task saturation where it's like, oh, I, there's there's so many things I can do. I mean, this is one of The advantages of the Star Trek setup, right, is that oh well, you've got a mission. You know, (laughs) here's this area you're gonna explore that, and you will encounter Q and the Klingons. And you know, it's it's a good structure. It's robust. It lets you get a lot of different stories in there. And that's one of the things you can do with Termination Shock is you you could set it up that okay, yeah, you're you're explorers. You're the first humans to. Travel around this region of space. God only knows what you're going to run into.
0: I think it's interesting that you've got the the podcast up and starting to, uh, and that's a way of someone like checking out the game before they buy almost. Uh, I was speaking yeah. to my friendly local game store guy recently when we we talked right at the start uh, of this podcast, actually, and we're chatting saying, how do you make these new gems and what do they do? And, and he was saying a lot he's seen these days from certainly the younger crowd is, they're watching other people play games online or listening to podcasts of actual players and that kind of stuff and that's what's getting them started and then there's a bunch of people that get together and try to work out how it all works but the the jumping off point is listening to someone else making some characters or playing a game and that's when they sort of get excited about it and decide they want to do it for themselves as well
1: well sure it's it's media the the choke the the choke point for producing media has completely broken I mean. 20 years ago, we couldn't have done this. We couldn't have, you guys couldn't have had your own radio show. I couldn't have had my own voice broadcast that was available to millions of people. There was just, you know, the only way you did that was over the radio and radios were, radio broadcast was hugely expensive or else only had a three block radius. (laughs) But now anyone can produce video. Anyone can produce audio. Uh, And so, yeah. I'm shocked that so many people want to watch other people play games, but I'm like, okay, if that's what people like, hey, I'm playing games.
0: <laughs> yeah, <come> watch me. <laughs>
1: well, in in my case, listen, because yeah, nobody wants nobody wants to watch this guy. But
0: she's <laughs> got a great face for radio, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> so, have you got anything else lined up coming up? You mentioned quite a lot you're already busy with there. Yeah, any any
1: final thoughts I, or stuff you've got? 2018 is rains coming up soon. And I'm, I'm very excited about that as I've been, you know, going through the, the files and the text. uh, I'm like, what I should do is just the simplest possible version of that. Have that alone as like a quick start and then introduce everything else as here are options you can glue on. If you want this part of your game to be more complicated and interesting, but don't try to glue on everything. So rain's coming. The thing after that will be Grim War, getting that kick-started in conjunction with Arc Dream. Uh, we're, we're trying to set it up so that we stick to our core competencies uh, in which I write and develop and have ideas and uh, Shane organizes things and behaves like a grown-up. <laughs> uh, Termination Shock is chugging along I'm think I'm I'm contemplating setting up a Kickstarter drip or a Patreon kind of setup for that. Maybe after I get the uh, the main book uh, built, and uh, you know, all the players we have on the radio on the podcast are are interested in producing material for it. So that could be exciting and fun. And I've also got a giant epic fantasy novel in. The background that I've been chipping away at when other projects slow down, so I'm trying to get uh, get some text in on the Moon Silver <coughs> at least once a week. Hmm. So, yeah, that's what's keeping me out of trouble in 2018.
2: And, and what do you what do you play when you're not doing your own stuff? What do you do for kicks?
1: Oh, um, well my uh, my tabletop role playing time is occupied with Termination Shock. We've got the weekly. Hmm. Sunday Skype game. Uh all four of us are, are in different time zones. It's great. Computer game wise, yeah, it's XCOM. That's I I keep I keep going back for more of those aliens. And uh we've got, you know, the pile of card games at home. So every now and then one of my sons will say, "Hey, we haven't had a family game of Star Realms in a while." And we'll do a big four-sided battle in which mm-hmm. everyone wails on each other. And I try to manipulate the two sons into uh, uh, sibling rivalry-fueled mutual destruction. Yeah, it works about half the time. <laughs> that's that's my, uh, my gaming situation. I, maybe I should do a, uh, you know, see if I can fit in a, uh, a Grim War game in there when I, I'm, I'm spinning that up to speed. You know, yeah, who knows? I could I could try the promotional podcast shtick with that too, but we'll see. Sure. Yeah. Well let us know if that goes on.
2: I, I know that there'll be people over this side of the pond who wanna wanna hear about that. Okay. Yeah, well
1: sure. groovy.
0: Brilliant. Well, thanks very much for coming on, Greg. It's uh, it's been awesome to talk to you and no, find out. Been awesome a
1: treat. I, I kinda I kinda jawed and jawed, didn't I? My my throat's all dry now. But <laughs> call me back anytime and uh thanks for having me on. Thanks Thanks very much. It's a real pleasure.